Hey everybody, welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts. So, you know, I remember the summer between the 10th and 11th grade. Had to have been because I was 16 at the time. Um, and I, I knew that I had, and I was one of these sponges in school where I tried to learn as much, like, just kind of language byproduct from whomever was studying a particular language. Um, so it had to have been between 10th and 11th grade. Do you know what I mean by that? No, I don't. So Central offered all of these, um, you know, you could study a foreign language. And I would hang out with kids who took a language other than Spanish. I see. And then I tried to learn some of whatever it was that they were learning. Uh, but it was a hot enough summer. It was, uh, it had to have been, you know, it feels like in my head, maybe late June, early July. It was hot enough for the public pools to be open, which is this marking point. Because in public housing, so in the projects that I lived in, I mean, there were always kids upon kids. Especially by the time school let out, all the cousins would come from around the city and they would all like come to play down in the projects. Uh, and so there'd be kids everywhere. And the only time that, that the density of the kids would like kind of thin out, the only time that there'd be kids who were um, like just not on top of each other would be after the public pools open. And then different kids would go to, to different pools. You little know, Philadelphia public pools. The, the public pool system. So we, we had one pool that was kind of close to us. But for the really good swimmers, they would, they would go to another pool that was about, I guess, maybe three miles away. Um, because that, that pool had a diving board. But at any rate, uh, this particular hot summer, it was, I was never a good swimmer. So I was still, you know, I was on the block. Um, but it was densely populated enough for it to stand out when these two youngish, probably 20s, these two young white women strolled into the neighborhood. So if you don't know anything about just, you know, how a housing project might be set up. So we didn't, you know, Philly is a city that doesn't really have a gang presence per se, um, people weren't really doing gangs since I want to say the late seventies, but there is still like odd territorial things that happen. Uh, and it's kind of an unwritten rule that you don't go into somebody else's neighborhood, or at least like not a neighborhood like this. Generally, that's a cause for, um, you know, some, some physical confrontation that's <laughs> going to inevitably end up in you. Uh, getting crushed by a group of people who don't know you. And so it's always with some some trepidation, even if you have to go through somebody else's neighborhood, you got to kind of tread lightly. Uh, it helps if you know some people or can drop some names. Oh, I'm Pee Wee's cousin, you know. Uh, we used to go to, you know, I, I would go through West Park, which was like a, a somewhat of a rival project. Uh, but I, my cousin Fred lived over there. So, I mean, the minute I saw people walking toward me, I'd be like, yo, you guys know Fred? What, what floor is he on? Mm. I think he's on 12th. Is Fred on the 12th or 11th? 
something like that, just to to build it like, oh, he knows he knows Fred. So these two white women, uh, they they come through the neighborhood and they look lost, and I can hear the people around me like they're plotting. Um, and part of that, I think, was when I say plotting, I mean like these, these girls were in some trouble. They didn't know it yet. Um, and you know, I have no idea what the potential outcomes would have been. They they probably would have been less than great. Um, but something, you know, I, I was listening closely enough, and as I was listening to them, both being somewhat lost, somewhat spacey, um, somewhat oblivious to their environment, but also as they were talking to each other, it sounded like French. Hmm. Um, and while whatever would have happened uh, on its own could have been left to its own devices, the fact that these were people who I perceived as being from another country made me feel the need to intervene, right? And so I approached these two women who, you know, I had some mixed feelings about myself. One was that, why are you here? Two is that you don't belong here. And I had a real sense that if anything had befallen them, I would have been okay with it, right? Like, because yeah, you kind of deserved it. That was my feeling. Uh, but when I found out they were French, I engaged them. Uh, my French wasn't great. You know, it was 10th grade. I was a Spanish student. Um, my French wasn't great. Their English wasn't great. And I was like, wow, here are these two foreigners that were connected to the University of Pennsylvania somehow, who, you know, in their explanation, they were exploring the city. And part of that exploration was doing some odd tourist loop in the housing projects, uh, which also didn't make me feel great and also kind of made me um, just not want them to be there. But since I was aware of the, the kind of machinations that were starting to happen uh, in my environment, I figured that the least that I could do is give them a warning so that, I mean, because they were in hot water even if they didn't realize it. Um, so, you know, through my French and their English, I suggested that, look, I, I don't think you understand all the forces that are moving against you right now. Your best bet is to turn around and go back where you came from. Um, and, I mean, they didn't push back at all. I think they understood that, oh, it, it's time for us to go. Um, and, you know, I think this was one of the times early enough in my life where even if it hadn't felt so crystallized, this was maybe the time that I felt most viscerally the idea of, of how xenophobia works. Mm -hmm. It was certainly the most, when I think about the most visceral feel that is xenophobic for me, this is one of those early experiences that like felt like you foreigners don't belong here. You need to you need to go mm -hmm. go back to wherever it is that you came from. Mm -hmm. um, and so on today's episode, on today's podcast, I'd like to talk about you know xenophobia and foreigners and uh, those feelings that happen. I think uh, both viscerally and how we understand that, and what it means to our society kind of at large. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you when you were mentioning doing this podcast, you said you wanted to call it uh, The Trouble with Foreigners, right. which, you know, it's an interesting title because it might seem that you're going in a direction to say that the troubles come with foreigners. But I think mostly it's about our internal state, our trouble with right. foreigners, what happens when we um, interact or engage with those that are foreign to us, those that we don't quite understand. Um, I have my own story. I 
I'll make it quick. I I think back on probably the first time that maybe I'm ex- I was experiencing some of the xenophobia that that you were describing for me. I was I went to this my freshman year in college. I went to this small liberal arts college. It was in this little town in Illinois, and um, in one of the dorms they had a special program the college did with students from Saudi Arabia. They were just men, mm. um, no no women. And they um, occupied a, a floor on a dorm that was across the way from me. Um, and it was just so clear at the time, and looking back on it now, how um, they were so othered. It was as if, you know, the university or the college um, operated and they were a separate section. Right. Um, they weren't ever really integrated. I never really asked myself why. And when I think about that feeling um, that you're describing of thinking probably they don't belong there, that's what I thought. There wasn't any real harboring of resentment. I don't think I ever had any hostility towards um, these students. But I think in that sense of you just don't belong, and I didn't know or even consider how integration would look. Um, Looking back on it now, I see it as kind of this, this outside kind of this outsider status you aren't a part of the united states this is in my you know whatever 18 year old mind right. that was very unprocessed you weren't a part of the united states you really aren't necessarily a part of this college you'll just do your thing we'll do ours and that wasn't just my viewpoint i think i got it from the culture of the of the school that's absolutely right yeah nobody was really trying to do anything different and i think the saudi students really did understand it i don't think they ever really tried to do anything different either but there's this kind of understanding that you know any girl or any college student um wouldn't date them like it just kind of was off limits nobody really said this but it just you felt it. right don't date the saudis Exactly. And it's it's so weird to look back on that now because it seemed like such a part of the landscape. Like I wasn't really questioning it. And I don't know. I say that sort of sheepishly. Like I wish I would have. Um, you wish you would have dated one of the Saudis? Oh, no. I mean, not that I wish I wouldn't have dated one of the Saudis. I didn't really know the Saudis. I wish I would have questioned it. I wish I, I would have wondered why there was a separation. I just accepted it. Um, and I think, you know in keeping with the trouble with foreigners is was the trouble with us it was our trouble it was our understanding that i don't know something didn't really belong couldn't really understand how um this fit into our world and so it just became the the trouble yeah I, i i like your point about not understanding how it fits into our world uh because in some ways i think that is that's really the issue that undergirds so much of of what's happening i I mean I don't want to say obviously this is the most xenophobic point in our history uh, because I'm just not that sure about it. Um, we've had plenty of points that were xenophobic enough that uh, I'd feel I'd feel irresponsible at kind of singling out this 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 moment. Oh, so you're saying you can't single out this as the most xenophobic point in our uh, history? Not without like getting into some history, but like I'd feel responsible irresponsible really just saying that off the cuff. Uh-huh. Um, but it feels pretty xenophobic. But I think in recent history, yeah, this has to be one of the most xenophobic moments that we've experienced any time recently. Yeah. So certainly in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm 37, so. Yeah, that's not true. <laughs> By the way. Uh, but um, not true. 
But you know when and 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 I don't want this to sound like uh, like a, I'm a xenophobia apologist. I think like all things, I really want to understand it. Um, I really want to understand it, like what's happening uh, at the mechanical level, like mm-hmm. what are the mechanics of it. But I also think there's a way to disentangle ourselves from the types of identities that we have constructed, such that the that the xenophobia is less useful, like it's no longer useful. And I wouldn't say it just goes away, but it doesn't become a problem the way that it is now, if you will. So do you, are you suggesting that perhaps the identities that we um, keep close to us, the way that we identify ourselves, is some, are there, are some reasons why xenophobia seems to be a thing? Yeah, no, I do. I, so for so many people, um, let me think about the, the kind of idealized xenophobe, and, and this, this applies even to people who are not xenophobes. Uh, but I didn't, you know, we talked about identity enough uh, on the show, uh, Identity Politics, which was maybe number four mm-hmm. or five, Something episode four like or that. five. Um, but, but identity is like one of these tricky things that is, it's hard enough to understand, I think most, mostly because people have these, uh, these kind of emotional feelings about it. And they rarely do enough examination to, to kind of tease it apart, right? Um, and also, we, we have layers of identities, right? You can be you can be Christian and a woman and Baptist and a mom, mm-hmm. right? And so we have layers of identities that we kind of uh, navigate in different ways. One of uh, uh, but but one of them that that seems to be important in our society now is this idea of a kind of a phenotypic-based identity. And by that, I mean the way that you look, right? White, black, Asian, Asian Asian-American, all of these types of identities. um, They are important enough, I think, to how we think of ourselves right now at this moment in society. And I say right now uh, because they haven't always been that important. My guess is that they probably won't always be. But certainly right now in this moment, I, I think the way people look, right, the race, if you will, uh, and, you know, other types of ways that people look, uh, gender expression, so on and so forth, that's an important part of where we are right now around identity mm. in this country. But let me, let me circle back to the main point. I think for a lot of people, when they think about who they are and also like the type of world that they want their children to live in, I, I think for so many people the way that they conceptualize the world that they want their children to live in is some version of how they grew up, right? I had this growing up, and in their own minds, it was great. It was great for whatever reason. My dad held me on his knee, right? And Santa Claus was this. And you get this odd pushback. It's like, I sat on Santa Claus's lap, and I love my life just fine. Uh, what type of parents doesn't want their kid to have Santa Claus? Like, whatever, right? Like, we kind of take a some version of our childhood, and we glorify it. We almost deify it. Say, my childhood was so amazing. This is what I want for my child. Right. And I think the more that change gets introduced into that, like there were no Mexicans in my neighborhood when I grew up, and now there are Mexicans everywhere. Like that feels like the type of, I think, change that people, uh, they don't know what to do with because they're trying to recreate their childhood, I think. Mm-hmm. I think they're trying to recreate their childhood in the lives of their children. The problem is this, or at least one of the problems, is that things are going to change, 
right? Um, and even if you look at the way that people have like kind of constructed these identities, they don't go back very far. Mm-hmm. They go back to about their childhood. Maybe sometimes, if you're lucky, back to their grandparents. Well, my grandparent, you know, my grandfather planted. You know, corn and cabbage, and we eat that every Sunday. Whatever it is, right? I don't have to do these. <laughs> like you're doing a lot of voices. I don't have to do these voices. <laughs> I have to do these voices every time. But you know what I mean? Like it's kind of a thing. Um, but if you were to look at the life of the average American, let's say, um, in, in the 1870s, or God forbid, we go back further. I mean, if we look at Abraham Lincoln's life. Uh, you know, in the in the in the 1840s, things were completely different. Mm-hmm. People were homesteading. They were chopping wood. They lived in little cabins. Like, no one wants to go back to that. So change is inevitable, and we know this. Um, there's a kind of pre-Socratic philosopher named Heraclitus who says uh, that we can never step into the same river twice mm-hmm. because the river is always moving, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like our lives. That's like our neighborhoods. That's like our families. They're always moving. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as the same. But I think emotionally, we, we feel connected to this idea of what is the quote-unquote same. And we want to prevent, like, that's what safety feels like. Safety is what I know. Mm-hmm. And you introduce these elements that I don't know, and it feels unsafe, mostly because I can't predict it. Like, safety gives you the ability. So you were talking about uh, these psychologists who, who have this sense of, uh, t- t- so tell us about this idea of, um, I know you have this idea of, like, sec- security, secure attachment, and mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's tied in. Well, attachment theory is, um, you know, you become safe by your experience with your primary attachment that probably mostly, most times is the mother that is there significantly um, in terms of, you know, nursing and picking the baby up. Certainly the dad is in here too, and attachment happens um, around that as well. But a secure attachment is when um, a child will feel safe um, outside of the presence of the parent. I mean, there are different stages of development. So, you know, when a child is in, in an exploration stage, you know, maybe a toddler, um, they'll be holding onto the parent's leg, right. um, see something out in front of them, run to go figure that out, whether it's a bunny, you know, jumping through the yard. Um, look at the bunny and then turn <laughs> towards the mother and run back and grab her leg again. Right. So knowing that they can leave the base um, of the safety and the attachment and then explore and then come back right. and, and re-engage with the safety again. Um, when this goes awry is something like, you know, maybe the mom says, you know, here's a, here's a little example. The mother might say, hey, you know, I'm going to drop you off here and I'll be right back. And she's trying to get the kid to be okay. And so she tells them a story. So she leaves and the kid's like right back. And they're looking at their non-existent watch because they can't tell the time yet. The kid has Rolex. (laughs) But um, the mother isn't returning. And it creates the insecurity of does this really happen? Is she really going to return? And if this is done enough, that's just a real like simple example. But if, if the child experiences deserting or abandonment enough, then the attachment becomes really insecure and they don't feel safe. They don't feel like they can depend on something. It's not predictable anymore. Right. And so they get scared. And so we, it sounds like we need this sense of predictability. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a there's a clinical psychologist, um, Jordan Peterson, who I guess is in the, the throes of some drug addiction thing right now. What do you mean? Uh, He's drug addicted? 
Yeah, Jordan for a, he's he's had a, like a few months of uh, some addiction to some kind of pain pills or I something didn't like know that. that. Yeah. Whoa, yeah. that's uh, big big news. Yeah. So I it's maybe it's big news for like if you know who Jordan Peterson is. Yeah, I mean you know. Yeah. Let's keep going. Uh, but yeah, so but but looking at his his work, I think it you know or the way he describes the, the kind of matrix of, of how we see the world is that we're constantly doing this interplay between order and chaos, right? Mm-hmm. Between the predictable and the unknown. And his argument, and I, I think it sounds like even when we think about it from a child development standpoint, is that we need both this kind of stability, this order, as well as exploration or chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, you were talking about what it means to run back to mom's leg mm-hmm. uh, and having that, that kind of be there. I think as long as you have mom's leg to run back to, it feels orderly. Mm-hmm. But if, if chaotic elements get introduced and you have no control over them and you don't know where stability lies, then I, I think people get their, their hackles up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that I think happens with xenophobia is that there is chaos that gets introduced into the system and it impedes people's ability to kind of predict or predict along a certain lines. Uh, by predict, I mean, in this particular case, predict what's going to happen uh, in the future of their children as it relates as they relate that to their own childhood. Yeah. Um, and I really want to hear you tease that apart. But there is this you introduced in your story, you know, this you said these French women uh, might have really been in danger. Like there was some aspect to that, that things could have gone um, really badly for them. Right. Really bad for them. And, um, you know, I think that particularly when we think about the origins of this country, you know, black people being brought over as slaves, there was certainly something very bad that happened to them and continues to 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 happen, you know, based on um, prejudice and racism. So there, you know, certainly the chaos and order is absolutely makes sense. I think about my example with the, the students from Saudi Arabia, um, I don't know that there was any fear, but it certainly was this idea of being foreign that I, I was observing that was happening. We didn't understand even like, I remember even the food thing was a, th- a, a right. weird thing, you know, like, you know, they eat this food that I don't understand. Um, and I don't think that I felt really any threat, but I think there are people that are really threatened and that that is actually what is going on. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, in in this. So, yeah, I mean, it, this is definitely true. And I think xenophobia elicits that, um, I, you know, I'll try to constrain myself in thinking about historic examples. But to go back to the to the, you know, kind of the experiences uh, of blacks in this country, uh, you know, one of one of the ways that the xenophobia looks different than like racism or other types of bigotry is that. Even if they don't want your boy, you don't belong around here. Like, even if that's the thing, mm-hmm. they don't see you as a foreigner. Mm-hmm. They see you as someone like, maybe you don't belong in this neighborhood, but I already have an idea about you. You are predictable enough. I know what you're going to do or not going to do. Even if I have ideas that I think you're going to do this and, you know, whatever. Like, I've had experiences where people thought I was going to steal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not unpredictable. It's not a wild card. I see. Right? There's a There's a prejudging. There's a preconceived idea of what this this black person is going to do and I think the reason that that kind of exists around blacks is because they were part of this system however we've constructed this oddity of you know this system 
uh, blacks fit into that system. And so we're never foreigners in the same way. Um, unless you have someone who is like an African. And if there were like a Manute Bowl or some seven foot Sudanese person, uh, I think people would be like, well, he's black, but I don't know what kind of black he is and let's treat him differently. And, and there's, some, like, there's some historical ways that this plays out too, uh, especially with, with West Indians. But for sure, people who just kind of look different than the matrix of the United States and you might say that, like, the basic kind of visual matrix of us is, like, you know, European-Americans, white people, black people, African-Americans. Uh, if you live close enough to, you know, Native Americans, then they're in your visual matrix. Um, and also kind of depending on your geography, um, Chinese-Americans, right? You have the whole railroad thing, that thing that happened. Um, but people who are kind of outside of that. Right. If you look like a Middle Easterner or something, you know, you've got some thing on your head that I, people don't, you know, there are loads of people who can't make sense of who you are, quote unquote, who you are, as if your identity is all of that. Uh, but also they can't predict what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, I think, is the kind of what they perceive as the chaotic element. Uh, and And that's where I think you have really unkind and sometimes violent things happen to people because they, you know, I think they perceive that that order is going to be interrupted. No, I appreciate that. And I'm, I appreciate the distinction between xenophobia and things like racism or prejudice. Um, you said if it's out of this kind of, um, matrix of what the image, um, would look like in terms of, um, who's in or who's who's new and, and who I haven't experienced before as opposed to those that I have. Right. So, you know, to, to kind of... Here, here's how I, I think people can get off the hook. Uh, if they want to get off the hook, and lots of them don't, but here's this important distinction that, I, for me, I feel uh, around identity. There are ways to construct identity that's kind of based on how you look, which is like, I don't know, I think not the best. Uh, but there are also ways to construct identities around ideas, around beliefs, right? So it, you take something like uh, Christendom. Uh, Christianity, you know, has been around since, I don't know, like 2,000 years. You, you could make the argument that as far as the last ability, uh, the durability of, of, of an idea, Christianity is like one of the, it was like it, it lasts, right? Feel however you feel about the, the religion was like, what well, it got some staying power. Um, and you can't conceive, like if you're a Christian, you can't even conceive of, uh, of, of a world where, I mean, you know, pre-apocalypse or however it is that you see the world, uh, but you can't conceive of a pre-apocalyptic world where Christianity just disappears because of foreigners, right? Like if you look at, I mean, what's a foreigner really to the religion anyway, to proselytizing religion. And so if you look at the way Christians looked in the beginning, like, I don't know what Peter looked like. I don't know what Paul looked like, but I'm sure he didn't look like Donald Trump, right? I'm sure he didn't look like, you know, Betsy DeVos. He wasn't a white guy. No. That we know. Um, but, but if you look at Christians around the world, they are Asian, they're African, they're Middle Eastern. They're, you know, like Christians come in every shape and form. Mm-hmm. Muslims come in every shape, form, color, shade, like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and quiet as it's kept, a lot of people don't know this, Jews come in every shape, form, color. They're black Jews, 
there are Asian Jews, there are Middle Eastern Jews, there are white Jews, there are Indian Jews, right? So if you were to take any of the like the, the major religions and look at that that kind of central idea, you know, Judaism has been around even longer. So this type of idea identity, uh, identity based around uh, a core fundamental principles or ideas, that's super stable. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's this other question, or one of the ways that I, I like to look at it. Uh, I'm trying to, you know, draw a contrast between what it means to have an identity based around an idea and what it means to have an identity based around what you look like. Right. Uh, and I'm saying that the latter, how you look, is not sustainable uh, as an identity. Um, but I haven't really said, like, why I think that's true. Because people in their own head, they think, well, you know, white people will always be here. But that's not true, right? We have ethnic groups from, let's say, the beginning of history. Like, if you think about the Persians... Like the Persians versus the Greeks, like those Greeks, Alexander the Great. I mean, while we still have quote unquote Greek people, mm-hmm. they're not the same as like Alexander the Great. No one you've never met in your entire life. Someone's like, I'm a Roman. Like, what was that? Like, there are no more Romans. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll spare you the kind of, you know, laundry list of all these identities that have disappeared. But all those old groups, they don't exist anymore. Right. And I think this is a great intellectual pursuit, right, to understand this in this particular way. But the truth is that this is not going anywhere. We are looking at each other and forming our ideas based on, you know, how we look. Um, and I I'm, guess I'm asking, is your charge, like, how do we get everybody to kind of go in this deep direction when, you know, we have things that people have had to protect themselves against other people forming ideas because of the way that they look well so one i disagree well i mean let's look at it this way um i i I think certainly the idea of race the way we understand it or you know it's kind of identity you know identity based on looks the way we understand it now it's not going away anytime soon so like not in my lifetime right but it's gonna go away because you're 37 because I'm 37. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and I still got some time left on Lots the clock. Lots of time, yeah. Uh, but it is going to go away. There will be, like, white people will come to an end. Mm-hmm. At some point, we're going to run out of white people. Now, maybe. Run out of white people? Yeah, we're going to run out of white people. At some point, like, people just say, like, they'll say, I'm not white anymore. Huh. They're just going to, you know, it's just going to change. It's the same way that people are like, oh, I don't really identify as Roman. Call me Italian or something like that. Um and it doesn't mean like these people are going to like their children are going to disappear off the face of the planet. But at some point, like the utility of that identity will just stop being useful and people won't use it anymore. Um, I can't imagine a world like that. I, I'm sure. But <laughs> to, here's the way to think about it. Right. Um, if you've ever met the children of immigrants, say their parents speak like Vietnamese or their parents speak Italian or this, their parents speak German and the kids are like. Oh, mom, don't talk to me in that weird language. My kids, my friends always make fun of me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is me doing the voices again. Sure. Um, <laughs> but at some point, like, that kid who has all this, like, external pressure around prestige um, doesn't want to identify with the language of their parents. They're like, don't talk to me in that language around my friends. It makes me feel embarrassed, mm-hmm. right? And so here's this one kind of cultural identity that the kids just walk away from because it doesn't feel good. Uh, and I think that's how all of these identities, they disappear, right? I don't want to marry someone who blah, 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 blah. And they find some other kind of person to marry, like mm-hmm. the Cornish, right? So now we have a place in England. It's called Cornwall. Yeah. Which used to be its own country, right? Uh, depending on how you think about the word country. Cornwall used to be its own country. 
But there's no more Cornish identity. This is the people who disappeared. Still corning wear. There's still, there's still Cornish hens, right? So you have all that. Um, this is still corned beef sandwich. I'm not even sure that's related. How, however, uh, you have a people who were, they weren't obliterated. They weren't annihilated. They just chose a different identity over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is this will be the end of the kind of identity based on uh, the way people look. It's not like black people are going to you know just disappear one day because a mothership came. I don't know if you get that reference, but there's a whole mothership thing that anyway. Uh, but it's not like the mothership is going to come in like you know take black people away. Uh, it's not like white people are all going to get you know some weird disease and just all die out. Although this coronavirus tells Uh-oh. people spooked. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just that the the, the identities that are based on uh, kind of cultural affinity they don't last. They just don't last. Mm-hmm. Um, what tends to last so far that we've seen is identities that are based on ideas. And religion is is one of the better ones, but it's not the only type. We have secular ideas that sustain people's identities. Um, take the idea of the belief in the Constitution. That's a really good secular, you know, or belief in freedom of speech. There was a, there was one of these Marines, I don't know if you saw this guy, just kind of like reddish hair with a big beard. He was talking about uh, what it means to take an oath. Mm-mm. So you should YouTube this guy because it's somewhat moving in its own way. Uh, here's a Marine who he took an oath and he starts talking about what it means to take an oath. And you hear that the idea, this identity about taking an oath, about what it means to be an American, about what it means to, take, to be a Marine. The idea of an oath is sacred to this guy. Uh, and just hearing him talk about it, he talks like kind of slowly sometimes. He punches the word oath. I took an oath. And he's like, he feels like, oh, he's serious. So you get a couple things. One, don't mess with this guy because he will, I don't know, you know, he's a Marine. He's big, yeah. Right? He's, he's learned how to fight, yeah. Uh, and two, he's, he's serious about this idea of what it means, one, to be an American, what it means to take an oath. And the way that he was using it had to do with, like, the impeachment and the responsibility of uh, the Republicans. And this is a guy who, you know, he was like, it was a big United States flag in the back. Um and it wasn't about his politics. It was about the fact that he took an oath. And what was he disputing? Like, well, I mean, why why was he so connected to the oath? Because he was afraid that things were... Well, I'll let you watch the YouTube video. I see. But... I see. You did dance around that. Right. I got it. Yeah, no, I'll let you watch the video. But um, certainly the point is that we there are types of identities that we can form around ideas and that those are super sustainable. Mm-hmm those ideas we can you know we can push if you were to think about even even the way we kind of conceptualize uh our government our country now is very much rooted in the magna carta which is like 1200 some ad right and so this is like an 800 year old idea that there should be checks and balances and that the people have uh the people have rights right mm-hmm. um and that the government supports those rights uh and so uh, I guess my ultimate point is that as long as we have these ideas that are kind of based on the way we look, the way that we will conceptualize change and think about threats and think about chaos will be, you know, really in some way it'll be rooted in anything that interrupts our our kind of mental model of what our childhood looked like mm-hmm. and what we want for our progeny, what we want for our posterity. You know, anything that interrupts that narrative of, well, my childhood was like this, 
we're, we're going to, one, I think, experience uh, some sense of unpredictability, unnecessarily so, right? I think we'll experience a sense of chaos, unnecessarily so. And I think this is really the genesis of, of xenophobia. And you really think that this starts with kind of reworking or letting go of these very early ideas of what, like, almost attached to sentimentality. This is how I grew up and I remember how sweet that was. I, I, I honestly do. Hmm. And I think the more that we attach ourselves to these really sustainable ideas, uh, I was just talking to a friend yesterday who, you know, he's an intellectual, he's actually an academic, and we were talking about, you know, freedom of speech. And here's a person who has to, you know, he has to navigate the racism of the United States. I have to navigate it. We have to, I mean, there are loads of things that you have to navigate as an American who is black. But also these kind of fundamental principles, freedom of speech, for example, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, he's willing to defend. So am I. Because these are the things that kind of make the real qualities uh, of, I mean, the reason the U.S. is the way that it is today, the reason you can you know, have on the you know, Statue of Liberty, you know, give us your tired, your hungry, your poor, your unwind, you know, whatever it is. I was waiting for the end of that. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, I don't know. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you hit the markers, though. I think. Right. I mean, I think we yeah, we, we get the it. idea. Yeah, you got it. Uh, but but the reason we can we can say that type of thing is because there's an undergirding you know principle about the thing that makes the U.S. the U.S. And and these people can come. They can come from the Ottoman Empire. They can come from Poland. They can come from you know Italy. And you know, some, it's going to be some pushback a little bit, but they all eventually get integrated, mm-hmm. and this wave will get integrated too. You know, the people who are coming from wherever it is they're coming from, the Middle East or Mexico or Central America, whatever, they get integrated as well. Uh, but we don't even need the type of strife that we have because we have a good idea. It's it's a really good idea. We have a good idea, meaning go back to give us your tired, your hungry. Yeah, your go poor. back to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. I mean. Go back to freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, go back to freedom of religion. Like go back to like the kind of bill of rights and and I, I mean obviously the constitution as a whole. Um, but the more we can stay connected to to that idea, I, I think the less threatened we'll feel, um, the less crazy we'll be. Uh, but it also it gives you a sense of a belong to, to to something greater. Mm-hmm. It gives you a sense of belong to something that is, is meaningful. It, it goes not back it goes not only just back in time it also allows you to go into the future mm-hmm. so here's a little bit of a maybe a, a sideways question um, when you think back to that time when you saw these two French women and kind of mitigated a, a bad situation um, do you think that that was about your feeling of chaos number one and number two um, do you think, I mean, I, I know you were, I think you said 16, but if you could have kind of firmly planted your idea in what you just said around the beginning of, you know, going back to this foundational principle, do you think you would have felt differently? Um, so let me, let me, so yes, I, I absolutely felt elements of chaos. Okay. Um, I didn't know what they were there to do. I didn't know how it was going to impact my life. Uh, yes. Uh, it, it felt like here's an element that I don't understand. I don't know what they're here to do. Um, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it was in. It threw you off of the like 
the course. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, imagine it's the summer, everybody's chilling, you know, maybe you're eating a water ice because it's Philly. Yeah. You know, maybe you're eating a water ice, uh, peach water ice or something like that. And uh, it's very specific. Right. That we're, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and then these, these two white women come out of like nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, they just appear. Right, they just like just it's literally like drop down from some spaceship. And it's, and it's not like they were eating water ice or something like that, because then I'd have been like, oh, not peach water right? ice. Like maybe they're from South Philly or something like that, you know. Um, and they were like, they could have been lifeguards, right? Mm-hmm. But they didn't have that like, oh, I'm from Philly. Look, they were right. like, they were foreigners. Right, like, these foreigners. So yeah, it absolutely introduced like a, a sense of uh, unpredictability, and you know, I wouldn't necessarily have described it as chaos, but in in the way that we're talking about, it, sure. they absolutely introduced that mm-hmm. element. And. The second question, do you remember what it was? No, say it again. Going back to the foundation of what you just said, you described, if we can go back to this kind of more the belief system, right. do you think your, you know, your young self um, would, having this information, do you think you could have done something like that? No, and maybe that's the charge. I'll tell you, there's a qualified no. Okay. No, because I didn't have a sense of an identity that was tied to an idea. So if I had been raised a Christian, you know, in my childhood, it's like tangentially kind of related to, to Christianity. But if I'd been raised a Christian and I had like Christian principles at the core, mm-hmm. or if I'd been raised with this idea of these are the rights, this is our, you know, this is our constitution. There are some parents who like raised their kids, like in a kind of constitutional, um, you know, uh, belief system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they have awareness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if either of those things had been true, then I could have fallen back on this. I mean, I see I see Christians do it enough where, like, we're these type of Christians, we believe in this, right, right. And then, like, the kids, you know, start correcting their behavior. I've seen it happen with Muslims family, uh, Muslim families as well. Uh, but I didn't have that, so I don't know if I could have leaned back on that. Mm-hmm. And so maybe part of the charge is to, however it is that you can, like, I'm not telling white people not to be white or black people not to be black or Asian people not to be Asian. No, that's good because that's, yeah, not going to happen. But it is you gonna, can tell them. Yeah, it, it is going to happen. Oh, that's right. That it's was just, part of the show. It's just not going to happen yeah, in my lifetime. Right. But it's coming, right? right. right. Um, because they can, there's nothing they can do about it. Um, but um, but in, in, in that, also kind of teaching this identity that is around um, teaching an identity that's based on ideas, in addition to however it is you want to, you know, uh, gives people something to fall back on when they're quote unquote like kind of visual chaotic elements that, that get introduced. Mm-hmm. And even if there are, you know, elements that you perceive as chaotic or see as unpredictable or unknown and they're visual, but you have this other thing that you can lean back on, what does it mean to be a Christian? Then I think that kind of mitigates some of that that stuff. Yeah, I think um, you know, going back a little bit, I think to a couple shows ago, I think we talked about uncertainty. Um, what do you do with uncertainty? Mm. Um, and part of this too, I think it kind of aligns with, um, basing principles on ideas. I think, you know, trying to understand psychologically what we do with chaos, um, do we need to fix it? Um, can we sit with it? Can we see it as just our own inner workings of Mm. this is a chaotic process right now, but why, why am I feeling chaotic? Um, asking ourselves these deeper questions, knowing that, you know, at times, this is the stuff that gets going in there when something new is introduced. Yeah. Well, I, that, so I'm all for that. Yeah. I'm all for that. That seems like a tall order. For, that seems like a tall order for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, the idea of sitting with chaos. Well, I think your idea, <laughs> I think some of the things that you said uh, seem like a 
tall order as well. Really? Teaching your kids the Bill of Rights seems like that seems like a tall order. Uh, I think kind of giving people the it's not a tall order, but you know we are so geared towards particularly in this time um, presently what it means to identify with our outer appearance. I mean, particularly like with LGBTQ, with, um, you know, the Me Too movement, being a woman. Um, I think the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, there's so much. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're, yes, I think asking people to kind of just rely on this idea, which I don't, I think it's a good strategy, uh, but I do think it's a tall order. And yes, I think it's a tall order to, um, ask people to kind of understand what chaos is um, and how to kind of work with it and right. sit with it. But yeah, I mean, I think in life we we go towards tall orders. I mean, do I think this is going to change the world? No. Do I think that people can perhaps get a sense that they're, they don't have to be just um, moved by their emotional process at any given moment? Yes. So I lo- whatever world you live in, I love it. And I want to live in the world, too, where people just went toward the tall order. Because that's not the world that I see. Um, the world I see is, is very different. People take the path of least resistance. The only thing that I'm saying, and I, look, I'll agree with you. At this particular moment in time, I'm certainly, I, I don't expect any adult to just, like, not feel, uh, the, you know, the chaos or the disorder that is introduced by visual elements that uh, are different than what they're used to. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying is that there are enough Americans, with the exception of like some some fringe people, um, anarchists, and you know the, I don't the anarchists they have all these names anarcho this and anarcho that, but with the exception of some anarchists and some communists, I guess uh, there are enough Americans who believe in the idea of the Constitution that that asking them to teach a, a kind of sense of constitutional awareness to their children that to me does not seem like a tall order. That seems like that's an easy enough thing to get white people to do. That's an easy enough thing to get black people to do. That's an easy enough thing to get any American who's like not an anarchist to say, talk to your kids about the Constitution and understand the Constitution yourself. Mm-hmm. Like we, That's what it means uh, to be American. And I don't think a lot of people would push back against that. Uh, I think that the idea of having your kids understand these ideas, these principles that are like are the founding principles of what we believe in. You know, every time people get jury duty, every you know, like that's all based in this idea of you know us trying to defend the republic. And I think if we go into the future, and like even if like your parents are racist, but they taught you the Constitution, and then you go into the Marines or the Army, and then you fight near you know next to someone else who believes the same thing you believe, like that tears those walls down. Yeah. So I guess really my charge is like, you know, no matter how you see the world. Maybe it's your duty as an American to, like, have your kids be aware of the Constitution. Mm. So maybe this isn't a tall order um, because we're out of time. Mm. So uh, we got to go. Well, I I guess we're going to go. Thanks for hanging in there with us. Uh, Certainly if there's any feedback or any questions or pushback. uh, Yeah. Thoughts about the Constitution. Yeah. Thoughts about, yeah. Uh, Let us know. Yep. Uh, We'll see you next week. See ya.